Hello, you're listening to Peaches Aren't the Only Fruit podcast, a fan podcast about the Amazon Prime series, A League of Our Own. I'm Emma. You can find me on social media at Plateless Ordinary. I'm here with my co-host, Karen. You can find her at Les underscore Dish. You can find us at P-A-T-O-F podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and at Podcast in Progress on Tumblr. Today we're going to be discussing episode seven. And Karen, let's take it away for a two-minute summary of what happened. I think I can fit it in in under two minutes because this time, rather than doing it chronologically, I'm going to group it by theme. We basically have four major themes in this episode. First theme is Greta and Joe, or maybe even we could just say it's Joe, because when we start this episode, obviously they've just had this traumatic incident at the gay bar and Joe is missing. When Joe turns up, she's been brought by the police and the only way out for her is to be switched to the blue socks. And this sets off conflict between Joe and Greta because Greta just wants to run. And Joe says, no, I'm tired of being the sidekick. I want to be the hero. So that's one of our main themes this episode. The second theme that we have is Lupe, a little bit of Jess, and Esty, and this idea of what was, in essence, not even a B-side story, but like a C-side story, finally coming to the front. You and I are going to talk about that. I know we loved this story and would love to hear more about it. Theme three is really Max and Esther, and the story between them, and the fact that Esther is a pitcher on another team, and how unusual that is, and how great that is. And then theme four is the return of Charlie, what that means for Carson and Greta. A lot of drama there. Really great drama. So let's jump into it. Emma, we start with this opening. It's so powerful. It's traumatic. It hurts. How did you feel about that? So I'm going to say overall, this was an episode that I really enjoyed. I think, though, it was one of the most uneven episodes because when it started, I felt so moved I thought that the writing at the beginning was exceptional. This is when, as you said in your very good recap, Joe returns after being busted in the raid on the queer bar. And now she's being traded off the peaches. We find out that Beverly, who seems stern, who Carson thinks is just getting rid of Joe, is actually protecting Joe. That Beverly paid for Joe to not be in the newspaper and to safely leave Rockford rather than being identified as... I think, what do they say? Is it an invert? Is that what they call it? Yeah, they keep calling them inverts. What a dated term. I I have never even heard that. Before this show, I can't say I'd really heard of that. Yeah, but I loved seeing that side of Beverly, seeing Beverly's humanity, that she's stern, but she obviously really cares for the girls. And then I thought it was so poignant to see the tension of the relationship between Greta and Joe, I thought this was some of the best writing that we've seen so far. As I've talked about earlier in our episodes, I'm a big fan of Broad City, which Abby Jacobson did. And this really reminded me of some of the best writing on that show, showing a friendship where two people love each other so much, but they hit a point where they realize that their relationship and their paths in life are becoming divergent. Yeah. And I think something else that comes through You and I have talked offline about this idea of there's a little bit of immaturity in Greta. This is someone who is in her low 40s, and yet here she is still running. And Joe saying, I don't want to run anymore. I want to put down roots, and I'm tired of always doing what you want. I said just now, she's tired of being the sidekick. And I think this really is that moment where we see Joe finally really stepping forward and saying, hey, people come to games to watch me play. 
I'm not going to just trail you around. I have something going on here. Some reason that I have to want to stay. Yeah. And I think what you said about that running uh, themes in this episode really included risk versus safety run versus staying many characters in this episode face these situations where it's like am i gonna just dip out and not give this a go or am i gonna stay even when things are difficult but that being said i don't blame joe because she's really finding herself as we've talked about a lot before i mean throughout the series i was like i want to know more about joe i want to know more about her friendship and relationship i mean really it's a familial relationship with freda and this was a part where I finally felt like we got to see Joe come into her own and that it was just very well done. And also painful though, isn't it? Because again, we start the episode with Greta staring out the window, so scared, so worried. And then when Joe comes back, she's limping. And for Greta, it's like, oh my God, my family member has been hurt. It's not safe. It's dangerous. We have to run. And something that you've said, Emma, and I think it's so important to bring this up and we'll probably talk about it later too, but Carson, she doesn't have as much to lose, does she? She passes oh, no. as heterosexual, but Greta mm-hmm. knows that she and Joe, I mean, Joe doesn't, and she by proxy doesn't. And so they're in so much more danger than Carson, right? Because Carson can always kind of play the wife card. And this is one of those moments where you really realize how different Carson's experience is from even Greta's, that Carson and Greta calls us out. She has the security of going back to her husband, going back to her safe life where presumably everything's taken care of and that she hasn't had to find her way in the world the way that Greta and Joe have. Yeah, I thought that too was a really powerful moment showing that tension between the two of them and Greta being like, Carson, you don't understand this situation. Yeah, and it comes back to these issues of privilege that I think are really interesting that kind of percolate through the show that aren't always overtly called out. Sometimes they are. Lupe, for example, talking about that. And sometimes they're not. And again, this is one of those privilege issues where Carson has that privilege and she has no idea how much privilege she's carrying in that moment. Yeah, and I think that it would have been better to see even earlier in the show at some points it being called out more explicitly that Carson does have the safety net that she can go back to And understanding that her experience has been very different. And yeah, absolutely. Carson isn't aware of it. And I'm glad that they called it out in this moment of you may have challenges in your life, but you're not getting the the danger that other people live in. Although also, just to kind of throw this devil's advocate argument in here, Greta often does things and says, oh, I leave with a man on my arm so no one suspects me and blah, blah, blah. When the peaches walk down the road in Rockford, like half of them are in pants. They're not doing a great job of hiding, are they? No, and I think that kind of gets back to some of the confusion, as we've discussed, of is the show supposed to be a period piece? Is it supposed to be sort of a modern reimagining with a modern spin on it? I'm sure that there were women and other queer people who presented in a non-gender conforming way. But yeah, when you would see this group of people, it actually kind of reminds me when we pulled up a picture of the actual peaches and you were just like, queer, 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 queer. I'm sure that it was the case that you could tell, not to stereotype, but you could probably get a sense that this was not the Miss America beauty pageant, Mrs. America, but... Yeah, it is a little bit like they're hiding, but then they're also kind of hiding in plain sight in some ways. 
And I think it's interesting later, again, we've said time and again, we've talked about Shirley's homophobia, but later in the episode, Shirley is unloading her homophobia on Mabel. And Mabel, she knew and she's cool with it. And I think this is that question again of in that time period, how would people react? Would you have people that were cool with it? Or if you found out that like half your team members were queer, would you be really weirded out if you hadn't experienced that before? Because we have to remember that Mabel's backstory is very different. I mean, if anyone came from a farm, I really feel like it could have been Mabel. Yeah, she does make it sound that way. And I don't know, that's a good question. I mean, of course, you can't say blanket statements of, oh, people from this context are cool with things and people from this other context aren't. Everybody's an individual and people have different experiences. But for sure, I would say anecdotally, like my family is from New York, New York City. Even people of my grandparents' generation knew queer people. They coexisted around queer people. Even my growing up, it kind of wasn't a big thing. It was not really talked about explicitly because it just sort of was like, oh, yeah, queer people are there. People certainly were not making a thing out of it. But yeah, I don't know. To interrupt you, because I think it does bring back a really interesting thing, which is when we look back historically, we assume that people were more conservative or that they harbored XYZ beliefs. And that's not always true because pre-Nazi Germany was actually one of the most liberal places for LGBT people in Europe. And Paris, of course, was also really liberal. And in New York, again, all in a similar time period, the Roaring Twenties, you had Josephine Baker, you had Gladys Bentley, you had these people that were obviously queer and having publicly queer identities, at least to some degree. So I think this does come back to this idea of maybe people were actually more exposed than we think. Again, I talked about in our last episode, the presence of gay bars in America starting well before the 1940s. So perhaps we are retroactively casting this idea of conservatism that didn't exist. It's a really good question. And again, going to, I wonder how it would be between the big city and the small town. And this is something I think we're going to get into a little bit more in this episode in terms of when you're in a small town where presumably everybody knows each other and everybody knows each other's business, how does that make things different? Sometimes it might be, well, we know this about somebody and we're all right with it. But as we've talked about with, say, Bert coming back, like can Bert, we talked about last episode, have all these queer people show up for a party in Rockford, Illinois, and nobody notices and everybody is okay with it. What's the deal with that? Because again, anecdotally, I think it's more stories of people who feel like they have been put out from their small towns, from their environments where this might not be acceptable. And then you go to somewhere where there is a bigger community that you can connect with. Yeah. So let's move on because there's so much to discuss. And in fact, you said this was an uneven episode. For me, it didn't read as uneven, but this one episode alone, in essence, could have been half the season. I mean, there was just so much packed in. And I think of it as being kind of like if you went to a restaurant and you ordered one dish and that dish had so many amazing little samplers and it was delicious, but you're like, man, I wish this amuse-bouche was actually like the full meal. And then this other thing, this bonbon, I wish that was something because there's so much and you want to savor it and you want to have that little bit more time. But let's move on. Let's talk about Max and Esther, because I really don't want to shortchange them. I feel like sometimes this gets a little shortchanged in the community. People are so interested in Greta and Carson that Max and Esther gets shortchanged. When we start this episode, obviously Carson and Greta aren't a low. 
And for Max, I mean, she ended the last episode in this triumph and she wakes up. It's joy. It's that queer joy. They're in the kitchen. They're joking. We're hearing a little bit about Grace and Bert, which we always want to hear more about. But this is very much happiness for Max, right? This is like really the first time we've probably seen her happy. And I want to point out that another thing in this episode is the idea of parents and people filling a role as parents. And this is one part where we see Bert and Gracie kind of acting like Max's parents now that she has indicated that she's not living at home with her parents. And yeah, she comes over. I felt like it really enforced when she's talking to them that Max is very young and that Bert and Gracie, you can tell that they're older, that they're more established Part of what what you were saying about wanting to savor things, their chemistry, I thought was so beautiful, just so lovely as people who were in love. Obviously, they're grown adults, but they still have that warmth and flirtation with each other. And I had so many questions that I was so bummed we didn't get to know. Like, how did they meet? Like, more than just, oh, this introduction and they're bickering in a joking way about how they met, but like... We understand that Bert is living as himself and passing as a man from what we've seen. When they met, was Bert out as a trans man? Where was that setting? And again, going back to like, what were the contexts in which these characters met? Because they just seem to have such a beautiful relationship that I was disappointed that we only got this little snippet of it, but there wasn't time to go into it. Now, when it comes to Max and Esther... Something that I was really confused about was how has Max never heard that there's a black female pitcher in baseball before? Yeah, you know, okay, that's a really good point because she knows about Red Wright. She's followed his career. And also, remember how they've played the Screw Factory for like five years in a row? Did Max just miss five years of playing? There's not quite enough backstory of when Esther joined the team because one presumes she's been playing for a few years. So why is it she was never pitching at the screw factor? Because they obviously don't have a backup pitcher. Yeah. For someone who has obviously tracked professional African-American baseball and watched it, it is definitely weird that she had not heard of Esther. That's another thing about the casting. I felt like the actor playing Esther did a great job. But in terms of something that I think throughout the series about, you know, it's set as professional baseball players. So you have someone who is well into their 30s and they are the star pitcher of this team playing presumably against men who are, who knows, potentially 20 years old. I was a little bit surprised by that because we've talked about we're in our 30s and you start to wake up and you sleep funny on your pillow and just your neck doesn't work quite the same way. And even for male athletes, really most people start to peak. I think Tom Brady, the football player, he's in his early 40s and people are like calling him grandpa because just the career of professional athletes is limited because it's very hard on your body and you're an athlete. You can talk about this, but it was something, too, where I wasn't quite sure of the intention of Esther is older. Is she sort of a mentorship turned romance? Why they went in this direction with it? Okay, so I have a few opinions about that. (sighs) You're right. Andy Winslow, who plays Esther, is 40 years old. And from a physiological perspective, I mean, there's just there's no way realistically, you would not have a female pitcher in a male baseball league. This is true of basically any sport. 
honestly, there's a reason in the Olympics there's gender segregation. And that's because females have about 20% less muscle mass and stuff like that. So, okay, that part, we're going to have to suspend disbelief. I do want to point out for this podcast, I Googled Andia Winslow because I had been looking up her age. And if you want to see pictures of Andia with an Uber six pack, she's a trainer as well. So mad props. We are talking six pack people. I do highly recommend people Google this. I really believed her athleticism. I think she was one of the actors who really had a physical presence that she looked like she had confidence when she was acting as a pitcher. Yeah. And that ties into another point that you made, which is the relationship, kind of the dynamic between Max and Esther. Because you remember that when Max comes up to Esther and is kind of like, oh my God, I don't know you're a pitcher. Like Esther's kind of a jerk to her. And when Mm -hmm. we talk about this dynamic between them, Max is very immature in this moment. And she's kind of trying to have some swagger and she's trying to big spoon. But like Esther just out big spoons her. So it's kind of weird. We've talked about what is the spoonality? Who's the big spoon? And again, this isn't like top bottom. This is about... It's about an energy. Yeah. An energy and who is a more dominant personality. Yeah. And who feels like the person who is coming in as that more of protector. As you've talked about, some people, they can switch it. (laughs) By spoonal, Emma. Yeah, by spoonal. But yeah, I agree. Esther had a very strong, and again, it was delivered very well, a very strong, dare I say, kind of masculine energy. And we've seen Max throughout the course of the series toying with, am I going to cut my hair? Am I going to dress and present in a certain way? People are asking me to be more hard than I am. Obviously, how people express themselves doesn't have to do with things. You can express yourself however you want. But yeah, it really was apparent in this moment that Max seemed starstruck and young, and more green, and that Esther is knowledgeable and worldly and confident. Yeah, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But for me, what I would have loved is what if Max had met someone who was a little bit younger than her, and instead Max had to be the one to show the maturity. Max had to be the one to take whoever it was under her wing. And in that way, she could grow up a little because The Max and Carson storylines, they kind of mirror. And in both cases, it's this other person, this love interest, who's kind of introducing them to the world. And what if they just inverted that? And so Max was the one who showed her love interest, hey, come to meet my Uncle Bert and his wife, Grace. And that would have seemed to fit with the arc that we thought we were expecting in the story. And again, not that things can't go differently, but I think it was a little bit of a disservice to Max, too, that we only meet her love interest right at the very end. And there's so much going on. I'm just going to say, while we've been talking, I pulled up this link. Indeed, she was named one of New York City's hottest trainers in the 2015, 2013, maybe both of them. But yeah, props to her. Props to her. And they should have found a way to get her shirt off and show those abs. Yeah. And also... I think, too, having somebody like this who has that physical training and athleticism would have been awesome because most of the cast, they are actors. They're not athletes. Right. Again, not to insult any of them, but we've talked about this in the past. I'm not convinced that some of those actors have the body type for this particular sport. 
Well, that might lead into the Jess, Lupe, and Esty storyline, because I know that we see Esty talked about being the fastest runner, and her running just doesn't quite seem like what I would expect for the fastest runner in the league. But this, to me, was one of the best moments in the episode. It was one of the best moments in the series, actually. Again, I just wish and I hope that if we have a season two, we're going to hear more about Lupe because this was a bombshell. So do you want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah. But first, I just want to say, I feel like Jess and Lupe, this is the episode where I'm like, they need their own spinoff, where they just have their own show because the comedy between them, the chemistry between them, I love that. And I love that when the camera is, let's say, is on Carson, Jess, Lupe, in the background, they are acting, they are telling a story. And so over the course of the show, we've seen Jess basically teaching herself Spanish. And it's never directly pointed out, but we know that that's happening. We know that she can understand some spoken Spanish, and now she's starting to say words. And her Spanish is awful, but it's hilarious. And it shows that of literally all the people on the team, she's the only one that's made an effort to reach out. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, I think she is a scene stealer in a great way. Just a really great performance with just so much energy. And it's those little things like that, yeah, that we see in this episode that you're like, wow, you have given this character a story. It's not just a one note person who's in the background because it very easily could have been, oh, it's just one note. You know, she's the butch athletic one, but there's a lot more to her. There's more to her. And there's that, like, I don't want to say cleverness, but this intuition with her. The tire goes flat and she says, I need to get something. And she just sets Lupe and Esty up to resolve their differences. Or in this case, for Lupe to get over herself. (laughs) She comes back and she's just got these Cokes in her hand. And I just thought no one will ever be as cool as Jess. I thought that was just hilarious. It made me laugh the first time I watched it, the second time I watched it. I just, I really enjoyed that. And I also enjoyed, again, going back to that theme of people acting as surrogate parents. I think Lupe and Jess were sort of like Esty's parents in this part of the show. We find out this big bombshell that Lupe actually has a child that she left with her parents to raise. And we've seen earlier in the show that Lupe is sending money back home, which presumably was to help her family and to help her own child. I was like, wow, this is a whole backstory that you never would have expected with her. You never would have expected that part of her pain and difficulty looking at Esty is that she obviously sees herself in Esty and she probably sees her own child in Esty. Well, she says that. She says, you have my child's eyes. I think it was a curveball, pun intended, because we obviously see Lupe as a lesbian. We see her as what's probably an exclusive lesbian. It's like, there was a guy once. She ended up in a bad situation that many teenage girls end up in, and there was a child. But turning over that child is what enabled her to live, in essence, her authentic self, right? Enabled her to be in this gay bar in Rockford hitting on the pictures of other teams. That's an interesting story. That's an interesting evolution. For me, it's heartbreaking because Esty coming into the situation where she's the youngest, where she doesn't have the same language, she can't communicate with others. When she's in background scenes, no one else is communicating with her. She's very much isolated. So she thought that Lupe would be an ally and instead she ended up with an enemy. And how absolutely devastating is that? 
like you said, Lupe needing to get over herself because realizing that it's her own problems and her own pain with something that happened in her life before and obviously a sense of regret. It's not anything to do with Esty. And that too, I was like, wow, but we're only finding this out in episode seven, especially because this episode had so much going on, which I think we should move into, frankly, what for me was one of the lowest points of the episode and that I didn't really like, which was meeting Charlie. So what do you think about meeting Charlie? You know, it's really interesting that you say that because I think I might have said in the beginning of the season that the men were all portrayed really negatively. And Charlie is very much the opposite of that. And I think that's really interesting because a lot of times when you have lesbian storylines and you have a married woman falling in love with another woman, you have to kind of demonize the husband. You have to make him seem like a bad guy so that the audience isn't like, oh no, she cheated on her nice husband. But this show did the opposite. And it said, Charlie's a great guy. He shows up with flowers. He is excited that Carson's team is in the championship. He's like, yeah, you can come back next year. This is a genuinely great guy who wants it to work. So for me, I I really like Charlie. I sympathize with him. And I hate to say it, but part of me is rooting for him. So why didn't you like him? Because I felt like he was too nice and too modern. Again, going to what is this like a period thing? Is this a modern thing? To me, he felt like someone who came out of a 2023 Hallmark movie. He's so nice and he's so empathetic and accepting and so focused on Carson's needs and so focused on being patient when he's just coming back from World War II. And I want to take a note and discuss a little bit of history in this episode It's not a history podcast, not a mental health podcast, but something I didn't notice until my second rewatch was that Charlie mentions that he was in a hospital because he had effort syndrome. Effort syndrome refers to combat fatigue and themes more commonly now understood as PTSD. There actually were a lot of soldiers who came back from World War II dealing with PTSD even though it's not something that was really spoken about. And I think in historical memory, it's a little bit forgotten because in the United States, people think about the prosperity of the post-war era. There can be an image of coming home and having a house in the suburbs that looks like every other home and the economy booming and the United States emerging from World War II as a global superpower in a way that it hadn't been before. But Charlie mentions that he couldn't let things go, the things that he'd seen. What I didn't realize is that PTSD was actually not officially acknowledged as a diagnosis until 1980 in literature. So this is something where I kind of wondered, like, Charlie seems so nice, but are they trying to tell us that there's something else going on under the surface? Because obviously he's been dealing with a lot if he was hospitalized and he's coming home saying, you know, I have this problem. Yeah, they used to call it being shell-shocked. It's weird because a lot of this stuff, you know that the people who went through World War I and World War II would have had horrible PTSD. You had chemical warfare, tank warfare. You had horrible things happening. I mean, all war is terrible, right? But it kind of didn't trickle down to history until the Vietnam War. And then people were coming back with all of these mental health issues. And people finally started to realize a lot of the guys from World War II were coming back and there wasn't support. So they just couldn't talk about it. It is interesting that he's basically like, I have this PTSD. And Carson doesn't really follow up on that, does she? 
No, and that's where I just didn't find Charlie believable as much as I thought he was charming and great. Again, for a man in the 1940s, can't make blanket statements about people, but as we have discussed earlier in the podcast, presumably they got married right after high school, potentially. They could have been married as teenagers. They say that they have been best friends since they were young children. Six years old. Yeah. I just didn't find it believable that, for example, he would be saying, what do you think about children? From what we know about marital demographics and birth rates, and unfortunately, just the treatment of women by husbands. Again, obviously not every relationship. But I think it would have been more likely that if Charlie wanted kids, he would say, well, we're having kids. Something else I was looking up was about marital vows, traditionally being a woman will love, honor, and obey her husband, which is taken from ideas in the New Testament. Men were not told that you obey your wife, but probably they're coming up in a society in which the idea is that the woman who doesn't work, who stays home to take care of the household, is supposed to be subservient to her husband. Again, not that it's impossible that Charlie could have been this way, but him coming home shell-shocked from World War II, from their small town, I just felt like it would have been more believable, unfortunately, that he may have been dealing with substance abuse issues. He may not have been abusive, but he could have been. And I take your point. We don't need to fall into the cliche of writing every man or husband as being a bad guy, but putting Charlie in this context, I just didn't believe that he would be like, oh, the championships are the most important thing to me. And should we have children? Like you're in your mid thirties, presumably you've probably talked about this, right? I hope so. I want us to move on, but before we do, I just want to say one more thing, which is that when Carson sees Charlie and he's standing in the room with his flowers, I think she's genuinely happy to see him. And not only that, I do think she loves him romantically. This is something that we've talked about. Is it platonic love? Is this her best friend? In that moment, I do think there's romance. And later when they're hanging out on the bed and whatnot and they're flirting, I think she does love him romantically. She might be more impassioned, more attracted to Greta at this moment, but I don't know. I feel like she does love him. I agree. Something that I felt was a question mark in the series that I think was intentionally done and is a very worthy topic is sort of where does Carson fall? Because another thing is perhaps it's that if she's only presumably been with Charlie, she's known him since she was six and we can assume that they have not dated other people. Again, attitudes for women and sexuality at this time. There's also the possibility that she and Charlie don't have that kind of connection, but we don't know what it would be like if she met another man or another woman or another person in general. Okay, I want us to move over to talking about Greta and Carson because I love what Greta says. Joe has just left her. She has lost her family. And she blames Carson for this breakup, you know? And Carson's trying to placate her, but Greta is bringing up all these really good points. There's only two weeks left in the season. And Greta knows that at the end, it's the end of the fling. She's alone again. Now there's no Joe. You know, there's not going to be going to California with Joe. And for me, this scene between them, it hurts so much because Greta is so right. She's anguished and she says to Carson, are you telling me you're going to leave your husband and your comfortable life for this? And we just feel that this isn't the first time that Greta has watched a married paramour make that choice. She knows exactly what's going to happen. 
she's never the one that's going to be chosen. Let me ask you, though. Do you think that Carson would leave? Okay, here's the thing, because obviously we know what decision she makes, in essence. I think for a woman of that era, yeah, what are you going to do? You generally don't have access to your own funds. And we have seen that in previous parts of the episode. You couldn't open a bank account in your own name in that time. So you would always be having to carry cash, and that's obviously not safe. Probably there would be people that would not even rent a room in a house to an unmarried woman. So it would have been a very difficult life. And Carson would be going, well, I only knew you for a few months and I love you, but... So the show obviously wants us to buy into this romance, to buy into this idea of a great love. And obviously we know how the next episode ends. You and I, we've seen it. But I think that's Greta's point. Carson has no idea what it's like and how hard it is. And something that strikes me is Greta says, this was all a mistake. This was all a mistake. It was never meant to be more than a fling. Carson, she takes that personally. Like, oh my gosh, you weren't sincere. You weren't committed like I was. And it's really the other way around, isn't it? Because Greta was committed, but she knew that Carson could never be 100% committed because Carson would always choose Charlie and she would always choose that privileged, comfortable life. Again, going back to the fact that Carson, we learn in this episode, really has probably never had any experiences dating before. It sounds like she and Charlie just were seen as meant to be. In some ways, as much as the show is about queer joy, I think one of the most heartbreaking things is that realization that for many people in history, they ended up staying in those relationships. I mean, actually, when I was growing up, I had a couple of classmates who, in the early 2000s, their moms did come out. And they got divorced and they left for female partners. But that was seen as so tumultuous, even not that long ago, for a woman to leave her husband and be living her authentic life in a different way. I think that is really heartbreaking. And I really felt in this episode for Greta because she's obviously been there, which we've heard her say before, that she's had relationships like this. And I think it gets to the fact that when we first met Greta at the beginning of the show, she seemed like this perfect, over-the-top, bombshell, girl-next-door, just everything rolled into one. And that she, I mean, she's very striking. She has tons of charisma. But the fact that she isn't able to find that kind of happiness and live with that happiness, it's really sad. It's really devastating. I've seen, obviously, a lot of lesbian content, whether it's movies or web series or TV shows. And I think sometimes they oversimplify that issue in the sense of, okay, married wife meets woman, falls head over heels, leaves husband. But it's not that simple. And Greta knows that. And Carson in that moment is realizing it too. I think Carson's face, particularly when Greta says, are you going to leave Charlie for me? I think Carson had probably compartmentalized this aspect of things and avoided thinking about it. It's kind of like when they talk about, oh, are you coming back next season? It's like, oh, well, we can just resume this affair. It reminds me, I'm watching the Thai web series Gap right now. It's almost finished. And at one point, one of the characters is supposed to get married to a guy to please her grandmother. And it's kind of like, oh, well, can you just be my lover and I'll be married to this guy and he'll be my cover and you can just be my lover. And I think there is sometimes this assumption of like, 
well, I want my cake and I want stability and I want cover. And well, can you be happy with just half of me? And I think that does play into the tragedy of situations like this, where people find themselves and then have to decide as the person on the other side of that, do I accept half of someone or do I let it go? Well, what you said again, I mean, in this setting and this scenario, it's not like Carson could even just move on. Because I'm thinking about, again, people I've seen in real life where marriages have broken up and a woman is queer and she's now with a female partner. These are women who had certainly bank accounts. They had their ability to have financial footing, the ability to purchase a home, live with their partner, their new spouse. But yeah, for Carson, presumably she's thinking about all the things that would probably make her a pariah back in her hometown. And I'm thinking back to that first scene when we see her and the family that she goes to church with. What are people going to say? What are they going to talk about? Presumably they already talk about her family because her mother ran out, we're told. Again, I think it's not just as easy as, well, I'm in a big city with tons of people and I can just move somewhere else and no one will see me. Greta and Joe, being from New York, if you're on the Upper West Side of New York and you never go downtown, it's like it's a different world. There's millions of people. But if you're in a small town and everybody knows you and presumably Carson loves Charlie in some capacity and then he's scandalized, that's really heavy. And I think you're right that it's not a simple decision and it's setting up a really complex thing potentially for us to see if there is a season two. Yeah. I want to move on. Greta then fulfills Joe's prophecy about running away. Greta, finding herself in an uncomfortable situation, decides it's best to take matters into her own hands and heads to the train station in what I can only describe as a very stupid hat. I love so much of the costuming. I hate everything about that hat. Oh, I want to say Clance's attire in this episode I thought was so cute. I thought Max looked so cute. Bert always looks dressed to the nines. Greta, beautiful. The hat maybe missed the mark. It was like a black communion wafer. I was just like, is this period appropriate? Because otherwise, I think they could have ditched it. But you know, okay, I didn't love that scene. What did you think? I didn't love it because it felt like it was trying too hard to go back to that Mabel and Shirley discussion of we need people because they're our friends. Oh, we need to win the championship. And I just felt like we haven't built up the tension for the championship enough. Like this episode felt like they talked about the championship a lot, but I just didn't feel as invested in it. Yeah. The other thing is, okay, blah, 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 Greta runs, but... What if rather than running, she'd been like, oh, I'm just going to freeze you out, Carson. Your husband's here. I'm going to freeze you out and I'm going to play this game and then I'm leaving. It just felt like, again, as you say, like we've had this discussion, like the team needs you. And I'm like, kind of does the team need you? Because every episode there's new peaches. Again, this episode had new peaches in the background. These day players are different people every time. Like we're not going to notice. And it's terrible, but we haven't established who on the team is super important and who isn't. And they've just lost Joe. And it's not like they can afford to lose anyone else. But this was an opportunity for Carson to be like, I need you. Or else just not even have that conversation and just use that space for something else. For me, it just didn't quite hit the right note. And I think especially compared to other notes that we saw in the episode, like Lupe and Jess going after Esty, or even the tension when Max is going to find Esther, 
at least that you could see sort of the drama there. This felt like it was coming and it should have been the big dramatic moment. But I felt like the earlier conversations that Greta and Carson had had were more powerful to me. Also, it was a little forced when it was like, oh, I left you a note. Didn't you read the note? And just a tiny comment on the acting. They didn't time correctly between when Darcy said, as I said in my note, and when Abby says, wait, you left a note. There's a little bit too much space there. And Darcy should have just kept speaking and let Abby interrupt her rather than putting that pause in there because it didn't feel organic. I think it was a scene that got us to where we needed to go for the end of the episode, but I don't think it was their best scene together. And they've had a lot of great scenes together. I think Abby and Darcy have given performances that at times you really could feel their friendship. You could feel romance. Something about this didn't quite land. Okay, so as we wrap this up, let's just do our quickfire questions. What was your favorite line of the episode? I'm going to go with an exchange. My favorite exchange in the episode was when Esty was driving the car and she's going rapid fire about how she's 17 now and she's not just a kid and the way that she's going on this rant and then she's distracted and they fade to black and the car crashes. That kind of monologue, and then as we had talked about with Jess in the car also showing that she's picked up some Spanish, that was probably my favorite, not one line, but just more a little bit of dialogue that was so revealing and told us so much about characters in a really quick way. So what about you? Did you have a favorite line? I had so many favorite lines, but the one that I want to bring up because we haven't discussed it before is the end of the episode when Shirley is talking to Mabel. And Shirley's basically like, what? You have kids? And Mabel holds up this thing she's been knitting. And she's like, who did you think I was knitting this for? And it's just this little baby sweater. Oh, I have to say one of the funniest things too, the actor who plays Mabel was pregnant. And once you realize this and you notice that as the episodes go on, every time she appears in this episode, it was really apparent if you were looking for it. It made me laugh. She's holding a blanket. She's sitting in a way to have something in front of her. Knowing it now, I thought it was pretty funny. It is funny. What would you say, I called it the head-scratcher moment, I think, in our last episode. What would you say is your head-scratcher moment? I think it was definitely when Max got called up to pitch. When Esther said, oh, I can't pitch my arm, I'm injured. That was sort of like, is the show, again, meant to be realistic or is it meant to be fantastical? Because it felt like, especially with the Wizard of Oz episode, there were moments that felt very fantastical and were supposed to be in that mindset, which I love. But so much more of this episode felt like, oh, this is realistic. And so seeing Max get called up and them saying, it's Max Chapman and she's the only person who can come in and pitch and she kills it. It just felt unrealistic. I mean, I loved it in terms of being happy for Max and seeing her gain her confidence and getting her shot. But I was a little bit like, this didn't feel like it was set up that it made sense. So what about you? What was kind of your head scratcher? Yeah, it's so true. That was a very fantastical moment. It felt like Max was dreaming. The other one that I want to point out, though, because this is absolutely my head scratcher, Esther and Max, it's after the game, they're sharing a beer. Esther's talking about how really, it's not you versus me, it's us versus them. It's great, we can share pitching. And then they kiss. They are in public, they are surrounded by other people, they are surrounded by team members. 
Esther's team members. Why are they kissing in public? Yeah, that too was one of those things where I think if we were more believing that this is fantastical and they had made an attempt to be very, very hidden, but they could see everybody and presumably people could see them because then the coach comes over and sees them. Yeah, it just felt like that was kind of dangerous of them. Okay, final question. Who was your favorite character for this episode? My favorite character was Joe. Even though Joe only made a limited appearance, I felt like it was very powerful and that seeing her grow into herself felt like you understood where that was coming from. It felt like it was set up as something that even though we didn't see that arc so much, you understood that sense of somebody who feels like they've been in another person's shadow and finally stepping up. And so I love that for Joe. What about you? Your favorite character? I think in this episode, just because we had so much going on and so many storylines, and even though it was only probably like five minutes of screen time, I think Jess. Like we said, I think that was just a really bright spot. It was a nice comedic spot. It was a sympathetic person for someone who needed sympathy. And I just got a warm fuzzy from that. Now, let me say, this is again where looking back when I get to this episode... I feel like, why did we spend so much time with Dove? Why did we spend so much time with the, I can't even remember his name, the guy who represents the owner of the Peaches? Because there's these great characters, Joe, Jess, Lupe, etc. Where I'm like, whoa, I wanted to see all this stuff earlier, like at least in the first half. But now we're at episode seven and we've only got eight episodes and we've just learned and seen all these great things. Right. It's one of those things where if there was a season two, or if the season had been longer than eight episodes, and we had time to unpack that, you can see how things would have unpacked. And unfortunately, I just don't think we're going to get there. We've been saying it. The fact that we haven't had any news on a season two renewal. I mean, it's not looking good, guys. It's not looking good. So people know we're recording this in February of 2023. Generally, what's your sense of how soon do you find out about a renewal or not? Nowadays, shows have been finding out pretty quickly. First Kill on Netflix got canceled really quickly. Heartstopper got renewed even quicker. What was it they just renewed two seasons of that I've been watching? Wednesday has been renewed. I think we're seeing a shift in the landscape where women-fronted shows are not... um, I mean, obviously Wednesday was female-fronted, but I think it's a lot harder for shows like this to get renewed, which I think is really unfortunate. And I don't like the direction they're going in terms of what they're replacing them with. Well, for the meantime, people can catch us at P-A-T-O-F podcast on Twitter and Instagram, podcast in progress on Tumblr. I'm Emma. You can catch me at Plateless Ordinary. You can catch Karen at Les underscore dish. That's L-E-Z underscore dish. And for now, we're the Peaches Aren't the Only Fruit podcast. Thanks for listening.